Erin was lovely. She was one of the nicest people I'd ever met. Fun, always you know, had a beautiful smile. She had a nice sense of style. I remember when I first knew her, she was very much into the pancake makeup and bright red lips, and I'd never gone for a girl like that before. My name's Chris Doyle, I'm um, Erin Berg's sister, she's three years older than me, and we've always lived in Perth and been really close, and she's a good woman. <laughs> My name's Stephanie Doyle, and um, I'm Erin's sister. Erin was a, <clears throat> a mixed bag, really. When she was well, she was really funny and quirky. Really stubborn and very defiant. She's really loyal and there was nothing that she wouldn't do for you. She had this great laugh and she just would really giggle and she always put her hand over her mouth when she giggled. Um, she would wear bandanas and go and see local bands. The Stems, we saw the Saints a few times and the church. She really loved the Hilltop Hoods and Fidel for people who know those bands who, who does, let's face it. And she loved the Foo Fighters and so she was really quite um, an unusual mother. And then as sort of time went on and we had the children, that, we, that, that was really good. We had a lot of fun raising the kids together. Her home birthing of four bloody children was quite amazing. It was a hilarious. I remember when she rang up after she had her third child and she had her in the shower. <laughs> And she walked out and her son just looked up and went, what you got there, Mum? But there was always an undercurrent that concerned me. She didn't have a very nice childhood. I guess it was abusive. I was not there but heard lots of very unhappy stories. We always got on well in regards to that we would support each other's oddities. I don't know why I bought this thing. It's so noisy. My name's Norman. I was married to Erin for 12 years. We broke up about three years ago after having three children. And then along came a baby afterwards. Prior to the baby being conceived, we were seeing each other. We'd go take the children to the park and, you know, we could talk and it was good. But then when the baby was conceived, it affected us quite differently. It made me realise that I wasn't prepared to follow it through. I could see that it would just fall apart down the track. After the birth of her fourth child, she was really happy and pleased, but four months after that, she actually had to move from her rental accommodation. Now, anyone who knows what it's like to give birth and then to, on top of that to have to bloody move, and also the fact that it was quite clear after the birth of her fourth child that there wouldn't be a reconciliation with her husband, all that began to weigh very heavily on her. And she moved to a new house, but could never bring herself to unpack the boxes, to be honest. Kind of first started noticing that the wheels were really coming off, actually August last year. I said, take me and show me your new house. And in the car, she said, things are not going well. It feels like everything's falling apart. Stephanie and I started speaking to Erin at that point, as gently as we could, because she's a really stubborn woman, about getting some help. And we looked into counselling options, trying to get her some more help with the kids. But she really felt so ashamed of her depression and she blamed herself that it was somehow her fault rather than it was actually just a quite normal reaction to a really bad time in her life. I was getting really worried because I could hear that she was really struggling and she had visited a GP and our understanding is that antidepressants were prescribed but our understanding also is that Erin, if she took them at all, probably took them irregularly and, and more than likely actually probably didn't take them. Erin was very anti-medical model and anti-psychiatry and she had this really fixed idea that with counselling and with exercise, things would get better. But it was really clear to us as social workers that that wasn't going to cut it. Erin didn't let me into the house anymore. And part of that is because that I'd noticed that she wasn't keeping up the place very well. You know, oh my goodness, this is a bit of a mess. Shouldn't you do the washing up or clean this bench top or 
that bit of rubbish has been on the floor for the last week. And she didn't just shut the door to me, but her sisters as well. And so for a long time, nobody could see how bad it was inside the place. There were reports from the children, you know, complaints that they didn't have breakfast before school and stuff like that. The other thing that happened at the time was that she decided that she wanted me to come back and she sort of resorted to a stalking behaviours. You know, I'd come home and she'd be parked out the front. I remember going, coming home from work and the next-door neighbour telling me that there'd been a mad woman banging on my door and screaming for hours, and that was Erin. The depression really got so bad so quickly. It was really a frustrating time because we could see how low she was and how she was really struggling. And then I remember we distinctly, we had not an argument, but a really quite interesting discussion. And she raised the idea of voluntary euthanasia. And she, she was sort of saying, you know, do you think people always have the right to die? And I sort of said, you know, in what way? Are you talking about, like, you know, when people are elderly and sick? And, and she said, well, yeah, but how about people who are just in pain? And I said, you know, you're not dying. You're in pain. I know that. But I said, that's actually not what it's meant for. It broke my heart when she would she'd just sit and cry and cry. And I remember one time... I followed her from room to room for about two hours saying, you need help because you can get better. Humour me for six months, counselling every day, go and do laps at the pool, please try because it can change. She's going, it won't ever change, this is how I'm going to feel forever. So what happened is around November, December, we noticed that she was becoming much more withdrawn and, you know, said that she wasn't coping and, and um, but said so with embarrassment, you know. She's a proud woman. Mama. But nonetheless, things kind of deteriorated. Erin had told the children that she was going to die soon and that Stephanie was going to be her new mum. But it was when we got into the house and saw the state that it was in, we knew we needed to make some changes at that point. So we hit the panic button mid-January. Stephanie and I had just gone, OK, we've tried the gently, gently approach and we called our other sister in Brisbane and we asked her to come over. We decided on an intervention with the backup plan of outside help with the mother-baby unit, which Chris knew people that knew them as being a good place to get help. Steph and Chris and I rocked up. We thought we were going to go to her house one morning, but in fact she was at Norman's house, her ex-husband, doing her usual fixated, obsessive thing and begging him to take her back. So we ended up having the showdown at the OK Corral at Norman's house. She just panicked, just went off in one of the rooms, I think, and shut the door, and I said, no, well, you can't do this. The first words out of her mouth, which she continued to repeat, was, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, and, you know, tried to keep walking away from us, and we basically kept following her and saying how worried we were, that um, the depression was something that was treatable, um, and she was just really distressed, like she cried, and I held her, and she just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and said how bad things were. It, it was awful, because we've always looked out for each other and it felt a bit devious that we had called Sal behind her back and I remember Stephanie and I, she wouldn't speak to Stephanie and I because we'd arranged this. So she asked us to leave the house and Stephanie had her little baby and I had Aaron's baby and it was a gruelling day where Sal was in there for a good couple of hours talking to her, going, you know, we love you and we want you to get better and you can get better. And But she was just so like, no, 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 go away. She was just very fixated. She'd read Philip Nitschke's book. She was saying, you know, um, this doctor says that you can die with dignity and that everyone has, he says that everyone has the right to die and you, and she was really angry with me and she said, you need to, you need to respect my right to 
choose when I die and how I die. And do you want me to die a painful death? And I would say to her, I don't want you to die any friggin' death. You know, <laughs> Death actually isn't an option here. We don't want for death to be an option. But she had in her mind this idea that death as explained by this Australian doctor, was going to be easy and it was going to be painless and it was really the answer for her. And then I told her about the mother-baby unit where she could go with her baby and get some sleep and a little bit of a break from the vortex of horror that is your life at the moment, but she wouldn't shift she was very, very angry when the ladies turned up, the nurses from the uh, mother-baby unit. She tried to run away, but, you know, they talked to her and after a fair bit of convincing, they got her to agree to go and look at the place. I think she went there as a voluntary patient, but she booked herself out the very next day anyway. It became very clear that Erin wasn't going to go back voluntarily and that left us in a huge quandary. What happened on the weekend was that things just spiralled out of control. Erin was just so unwell and her thoughts were really all over the shop. She continued to be absolutely obsessed with the idea of reconciliation with Norman. She continued to go to his place very frequently, make frequent phone calls... Erin was wandering around the house in a really agitated, strange, vague kind of way. Her speech was slow, her walking and physical movement was slow, and that's really an indicator of very, very severe depression. Things unravelled really badly over the weekend, and, you know, she had a little baby with her. So Monday morning... Got back onto the mother-baby unit and said, get out here again and bring a psychiatrist. We, we want her assessed for involuntary admission. So a psychiatrist came out with a nurse and that was another really revolting day. We're all very proud women and when we opened the door... I just remember her face when the, the psychiatrist and the nurse walked in and she just kind of looked over and I did. I felt like such a Judas. But I just remember thinking, this is what we have to do because this isn't Erin. Her first response was one of feeling betrayed by us all, that we had gone behind her back and forced the issue, something that she wasn't wanting. So she was very angry at us. You know, the psychiatrist didn't really need to see terribly much. She was very direct and she said, this can't go on, Erin, this is not a safe environment for you. It's not safe for the children. You know, you can come in voluntarily or we'll put you on an involuntary order. And Erin made it clear that she wasn't going to be going voluntarily. So Philippa Brown said, well, you will be coming in on an involuntary basis. Erin looked at me and said to me, I will never forgive you for this. And I said to her, that's okay. And she absolutely pinned me with her eye contact. Again, very unusual. And she said, no, it's not okay. I will never forgive you. I remember knocking on the door to her bedroom and she just said to me, what if they find out I'm really bad, Daph? Daph's my nickname. And I said, well, it'll be okay. Can I get some help? We're all going to take care of all the kids as we have, you know, but the important thing is to get better. And I didn't really get... I think the gravity of what she was communicating to me at the time. And that's when she kind of started getting her gear together and and we took her in the car to go. It was really hard. She was really distressed. You know, she put makeup on because she wanted to look nice. She had a shower before she went. And, you know, I remember looking in the rearview mirror and her mascara was just all over her face. 
You're listening to 360 with me, Kirsty Melville, on ABC Radio National, and to the story of Perth mother Erin Berg and her battle with postnatal depression. Her story is being told by ex-husband Norman Berg and her sisters Stephanie, Sally and Chris Doyle. So she was admitted, we had a family meeting, that Erin refused to attend. She was very clear to the unit, she said, you know, I don't want my family to get any information about me. She was so angry that this had happened. And I suppose the crux of the message that we got was, you know, don't be her social workers, you need to back off and let us do our job. And so they said, you know, take her out for coffee and, you know, go for a walk to Subiaco with her and, you know, just support her. And, you know, that just sounded really great. (laughs) But she didn't want to have coffee with us. She didn't want to walk around. She didn't want to pretend everything was okay when when she obviously didn't feel that it was, you know. Could I just say also that the other thing that was made abundantly clear in that first meeting and that was repeated again and again was that no detailed information about Erin's treatment um, was going to be provided because of confidentiality concerns. She was very, very unwell and she was in no position to be making decisions for herself. She didn't take any phone calls from any of us and visits were difficult. You know, she just didn't really communicate very much at all. You know, I tried to kind of make things feel normal. You know, I took some scones in and we'd sit and have a cup of tea and But she always kind of withdrew to the room and didn't really connect with people. But she said a facility like that might be good for someone, but it wasn't good for her. So I know that it was really hard for her to be in there. All of us are social workers. We know that our health system is dollar-driven and we knew for Erin the biggest risk for her was premature discharge. So there are at least three occasions I can remember where I rang the mother-baby unit staff at night and I would say to them, I want you to note this in the chart. We are still really concerned that Erin hasn't improved. You need to know that she's not going to have the level of support that she had before. And to our absolute horror, we had... No idea when Erin was discharged that she had been discharged. So the risk for Erin went up hugely because she was now isolated from her family. And the supports that she used to have, which was us, um, were gone. What had happened, in fact, was that after a certain number of weeks, Erin was due to appear in front of the Mental Health Review Board they just revise whether a patient should be kept in involuntary status or not. She appeared on March 31st in front of the board and in a very short period of time, Erin was taken off involuntary status. So the very next day, she discharged herself and so went home. The mother-baby unit, to their absolute credit, made repeated comment about ongoing risk for Erin. They made repeated comment that this is a woman who is intelligent and she knows how to present stuff to get what she wants, that this is not a woman who is going to comply with things on a voluntary basis. Please do not open the door. So they called me in to discuss a discharge plan and so they also mentioned to me that they'd found a travel itinerary to Tijuana and some travellers' checks and, you know, they were concerned that, um, well, they, they knew that Tijuana was where Nitschke was recommending people go to buy that nebutol and they also knew that Erin had read the book and so they were able to put those pieces together and advised me that they were concerned that she was, uh, you know, had these quite concrete plans for suicide. Did you assume that the sisters had been given the same information? Yes, I did, yes, because... That makes sense that they would, but uh, they didn't. He was told the specifics of what had been found and he was directed to take full-time care of all four children. He was a man who had been on the receiving end of a lot of pressure in terms of Erin's behaviours associated with her illness. So he was really burnt out. And they also knew that he's laid back in the extreme and they knew, and this was actually noted in the chart, that he tends to be a reasonably passive and not a proactive kind of person. He also was someone that we had had very limited contact with. I don't think it was reasonable necessarily to expect that he would be 
jumping on the phone to have a big chat with his ex-sister-in-laws who had at different points had some points of conflict with him. So, you know, it's a question that he has struggled with. It's a question that we have struggled with. It's a question probably that a lot of people who've heard our story are going, well, why didn't he say something? I think the more relevant question is why were we not told? And also not insignificantly I don't think the tier one plan was a detailed plan you know like this was a woman who had gone to the trouble in a severely depressed state to go to a travel agent and get an itinerary she got passport applications the very day before she was due to be released they found her hiding travelers checks under her mattress so this was someone who had an ongoing clear plan And look, can I say too that we are appreciative of client confidentiality. We've worked as social workers, we know that client confidentiality is really important. And certainly under the Privacy Act, it actually says you can disclose information if there is any indication of risk to self or others. And so the two aren't mutually exclusive. So we feel that it was reasonable to actually disclose that. Or the other option is... Okay, if you're going to keep everything absolutely closed, then you do your damnedest to ensure the safety of the person. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, I'm going to keep information confidential and then release them. Erin was formally released the, the day after the Mental Health Review Board meeting. A referral was made by the mother-baby unit to Erin's local community-based mental health service, which is Alma Street Clinic, which is based at Fremantle Hospital. What was provided to Alma Street was very a very extensive discharge summary because I think by this stage, mother-baby unit staff were kind of thinking, oh my God, things are really high risk for Erin. Alma Street were also given very detailed verbal handovers about the high suicide risk that they believed was there. Um, The mother-baby unit psychiatrist said that it was made abundantly clear to Alma Street staff that Erin was discharged not because she was well but because the Mental Health Review Board allowed it to occur. So they were really worried. I knew Erin had been discharged about nearly a week after she had been. I had the kids and I was dropping them back to their dads and Norman said, Erin's at home. And I did, I nearly fell off my chair and I went, what? When when did that happen? And he went, what do you mean, when did that happen? Monday. So I was really shocked and I thought, no, okay, I'll, I'll let her contact me. Like, she knows I'm around Because I assumed, well, okay, if she's been discharged, she obviously is a bit better. And you didn't have the information that Norman had about what had been found in her room? Uh, No, I had no, no, no information at all about how active her desire to die was. Erin let her case manager know that she planned to go on a trip for a week down south. Now... Would you not check what her plan was? Any attempt to do that would have shown it up to be the cover story that it was. I spoke to the ladies. I said, you, you've let her go away. And they said, oh, yes, she, she asked if she could have a holiday down south. Oh, OK. She to- well, I told them that she told me that they gave her permission to go to America. And they were frightened. But I was equally surprised that... Within a few weeks of discharge, with the notes that we saw on the discharge handover saying this woman is seriously at risk of suicide, that they just went, oh, yeah, that sounds fine. They made no efforts to find out where, who, what she was going to do, and that's not anywhere near good enough considering the circumstances, I feel. Their assessment was that Erin wasn't at imminent risk. Um, the mother-baby unit, to their absolute credit, made a very accurate assessment of the high level of risk for Erin. They communicated that risk with abundant clarity to Alma Street Clinic and for reasons best known to Alma Street Clinic, they decided to ignore the information provided. Yeah. 
Mother Baby Unit staff have been very clear with us and said we would have pressed the panic button immediately. Put a bit of bottom chiller on there. That's the one at the top, isn't it? On the day that Erin did leave to go, she told me that she was going to LA, which was very, very close to Tijuana. So I was able to, you know, put those two together. But she'd also told me that she'd told her sisters. So I assumed that they knew that she was going to travel. And I had in the back of my head that they had been advised of what Tijuana means. And I was incorrect about that part. So I sort of let that side go and attended to the children. How big were those alarm bells in your head? Quite large, because... I knew LA, Tijuana are right next door to each other and I thought, all right, you're putting your plan into action. But there was still a part of me that hoped that she wouldn't go through it. It was part of a bluff on her part is what my thinking was. You know, did if you say it, anything to her? I did, I did, yes. I said, oh, are you going to Tijuana, are you? Oh, no, no, no. She's been a big fan of American soapies, which generally take place in LA. And she had this great story about how she wanted to see where Tom Cruise lived, big Tom Cruise fan, wanted to see the bold and the beautiful lifestyle that she'd been watching and reading about for a long time. So I had these two thoughts in my head. Partly, I think she's going to go and kill herself, but I really, really, really hope she doesn't. She wasn't behaving like she was never going to come back and see the kids. And that's what I sort of took my hope from. I said to her things like, you know, make sure you've got a will if you're going to do this. Oh, no, I don't need one. It's going to be fine. All right, so I had to trust her because I had no other option. Though I tell you that week that she was away was a very, very long week. And we got to the Thursday when she was supposed to return and she hadn't. And it wasn't until I spoke to her sister's that they were really surprised. They thought she was still being looked after by the Alma Street people and I knew then that that she'd probably committed suicide or attempted it. Thursday evening, I got a panicked call from Norman saying Aaron wasn't on the return flight and he was really worried. And so I called Alma Street Clinic and I said, Aaron has gone missing, what are you going to do to help? And they said, that's not a part of our job. She was on a community treatment order, but the order actually ceases at the point that the person leaves the country. So basically we got a whole lot of bureaucratic rules thrown at us. And it wasn't long after that I got a phone call from Mum, who was really distraught, and who said, we have a visit from the Federal Police and they've said that Erin's in a coma in the Tijuana Hospital. And it was such a surreal moment because... Why on earth would Erin be in Tijuana? And all I I was like, okay, okay, we've got to go and get her. She'll be be okay. I don't know why she's there, but she'll be okay. And we'll go and get her. Erin's sisters, Chris, Sally and Stephanie Doyle, still hadn't been told about the travel itinerary to Tijuana the passport application, traveller's checks and library slip for Dr Philip Nitschke's book, Killing Me Softly, that the mother-baby unit had found in Erin's room. So they had no idea that Erin planned to travel to Mexico and follow the advice of euthanasia campaigner Dr Nitschke as a way out of her depression. Dr Nitschke recommends the deadly barbiturate Nembutal, banned to the public in Australia but readily available over-the-counter in places such as Tijuana, as a way for the terminally ill to ensure a fast, peaceful and pain-free death in the absence of any alternative in Australia. The sisters also didn't know Erin had gone so far as to contact Dr Nitschke's pro-euthanasia group, Exit International. The first contact we had as an organisation was a phone call that Erin 
put through to our office, and that came through on the 13th of December last year. These sorts of calls are quite common to exit, that I'm a person who's dying, I've got serious illness, really looking at some way to access a peaceful death. She told the person taking the call that she had cervical cancer. But it was really a few alarm signals, and then some of the psychiatric history began to unfold. The person who took the call, through some quite close questioning, had decided that Erin was a person that we really did not feel we had anything to offer. In fact, we suggested that she go back and seek further assistance from other more appropriate services. Dear Exit International, I am truly horrified at the information you make so freely available on your internet and also in Nitschke's published books, especially Killing Me Softly. A dear friend of mine and her family are now in terrible emotional pain due to their sister, who was suffering from depression following Nitschke's instructions to go to Mexico and purchase Nembatal to euthanise herself. I heard about it in the form of an email that was sent to me by a friend of the family who uh, said that she was in Tijuana, Mexico at the time the email was sent and that Erin was seriously unwell. Of course, the uh, email that had been sent to me suggested, of course, that we were very much responsible for this uh, desperately difficult situation that Erin Berg was now in, that is, that she was unconscious, having consumed something uh, in Mexico. It's very hard to see how we could have done anything other than what we did do. We said to this woman, we don't want to talk to you. Explain to her that does not fit our criteria and exit unable to help her. She then asked re getting to Mexico, told her unable to help and not something organised by exit office. Nil further action. On the plane, I just kept thinking, don't die, don't, don't die before we get there, don't die, don't die. We actually arrived in LA because there were no direct flights to San Diego. So we got a hire car, which was this really weird American tank. So it was this weird sort of psychedelic road trip where we've got, you know, images of possible horror in our minds of Erin dying. But it's, it was a sunny day and we were in California in this flash car. And I think we all thought that things were going to be OK. So we got to San Diego got a cab to the border and then Chris and I went to the hospital Generale de Tijuana which is their public hospital there. So we got into the hospital and I'm going why are there soldiers everywhere and I couldn't work out why there was military around a hospital. It was packed and there's just sort of people everywhere. I just remember it being so noisy and it's dirty and it's smelt. No one wore gloves, um, no one wore masks, and nurses moved from patient to patient without even washing their hands. We're introduced to a really nice doctor, Dr Sophia, and she explained that Erin had been found in a hotel room. They still were unclear about what she had taken, the likelihood was that she had permanent and extensive brain damage. And I said, OK, brain damage, what, that she's going to have a limp? Or, OK, do you reckon Erin's going to be able to, you know, walk again, talk again? And she's like, no. And then I was going, oh, my God, is she going to have trouble swallowing? Yes. Is she ever going to open her eyes? We don't think so. And this poor doctor just sort of looking at me going, oh, no, you just... You grasp at straws. Then Sophia took us to the intensive care area. There was a man who had an open left leg amputation and then Erin was in the farthermost bed and um, she was unconscious, she was intubated, she was very swollen with fluid. I was just so glad she was still alive. I could see her and I could touch her. And I just, I remember I just ran over and I just kissed her. And I, I was just so scared that I wouldn't get to talk to her again before she died. But just getting really terrified because looking up and her date of admission was written on her chest, Catherine Berger, intoxication. And I'm going, you know, the name, the name is wrong. And then it was that whole thing, they're going to lose her. 
was just in such a state of chaos, the hospital. I think the main thing that hit Chris and I was that her chest really heaved with every breath from the ventilator and we later learned that there wasn't a proper calibration of the respirator. It wasn't synchronised properly to Erin's own breathing so she had this awful double breath which looked really uncomfortable for her and was really distressing for us to see. The next day I slept in and Chris got up early and God bless her, she was really worried that there might be suicide notes that might be angry or blaming or notes that might be just too upsetting for all the rest of us. I think she just wanted to protect me and Steph and Mum from stuff that was too bad. So I got a cab and I went to the hotel where Erin had been staying and where she'd taken the overdose. And I walked in and this woman looked up and she just, you know, she went a bit grey. And she just said, you look like the lady. And I said, yeah, it's my sister. I'm, I'm here to get her things and can I talk to you? The poor woman, she just burst into tears and she felt so guilty and she said, well, I should have checked her. I should have gone in earlier. And I said, can you tell me how she was? I said, how was she when she was here? And she said, I thought she wasn't OK. She slept a lot. She then took me into the back room to give me Erin's things. And just the overwhelming stench of... Uh, I'm assuming it's the Nebutel, because there was a smell all in the suicide notes and in her clothes of vomit and chemicals. And I was just like, oh, Christ, what the hell did she drink? And then the woman gave me the bottle of Nebutel and they said, we found this and we found a bottle of whiskey. And I said, was there anything else? Was there anything else in her room? And she said, no, there was nothing else. There was just this bag. She travelled there with just a little overnight bag and there was no photos of the kids with her. Erin's sister, Chris Doyle. You're listening to 360 with me, Kirsty Melville, on ABC Radio National. And to the story of Perth mother Erin Berg, who is in a coma in a Mexican hospital after attempting to take her own life. Erin had drunk a 100ml bottle of the veterinary tranquilizer Nembutal, accessible in Australia strictly only to vets, but readily available over the counter in pet supply shops in Mexico. Erin had once worked as an occupational therapist in a psychiatric hospital with patients who hadn't succeeded in taking their own lives. She knew what damage could be done, so was drawn to Dr Philip Nitschke's promise of Nembutal offering a fast, painless and, most importantly, a reliable death. It's a liquid. It's very bitter. You don't drink it by accident. And in that 100 mils is 6 grams of the drug pentobarbital sodium. If you drink that... I've never seen anyone survive. Uh, you go to sleep very quickly and die, usually within the first uh, half an hour to an hour. So if it didn't kill Erin Berg, how can you say or promote that it guarantees a reliable, peaceful death? Well, what did what did Erin Berg take? We just don't know. The fact that they found a bottle of something there could have been anything. And she may have vomited it. She might have decided halfway through it that she didn't like the taste of it and poured the rest down the sink. How do you know? I don't know. The fact is that no autopsy was done. We don't know what she did. And I mean, everyone's saying they know what she did, but they don't know what she did. We know that fairly close to the time that she took the drug, she made a phone call to Norman and she also made a phone call to Mum. Erin remained very fixated on a reconciliation with Norman and I believe that that's what was discussed. With Mum, she didn't really talk very much. She just said in a really quiet voice, ''Hi, Mum, it's me.'' Mum spoke to her for a few minutes and said, you know, I love you, I hope you're OK. Mum had no idea, of course, that she was in Tijuana. We realised that it's all going downhill at the rate of knots because even all the hotel staff are going, you can't go to the hospital. It's too dangerous. There's a bit of a drug war going on where there's two cartels fighting at the minute and there was eight people shot in the city a couple of days before Erin 
took the overdose. A confrontation between rival criminal gangs left 13 dead and nine injured yesterday. Soldiers held Tijuana's main hospital in virtual lockdown Tuesday as doctors treated eight drug traffickers wounded the in running shootouts. The shootouts are among the fiercest the city has seen in recent Even years. Even in Mexico's most violent city. I remember I'd entertain myself where I'd see how many guns I could count. And I remember once I counted 20 and you could hear ambulances, like sirens, and they were getting closer and I was like, oh God, there's been more shootings. It was just this cacophony of sirens getting louder and you knew they were all coming to the hospital. And this guy got brought in in shackles and like this man sat next to me just covered in blood. One of the reasons that the, one of the doctors said that they were so nervous in the hospital was that there'd been a, a very recent episode where drug gang members were injured, that their compadres would shoot their way into the hospital to retrieve them or to get back at the opposing gang members and the um, guards were very on edge. These were the people we were having to negotiate with to get in to see Aaron and there was one day that was really hard because Erin had started to show signs of waking up and we got there and I don't know what had happened but there were just guards everywhere, there were ambulances everywhere, it was bedlam and no one spoke English and no one would let us in to see Erin so we were in this filthy tiny waiting area and there was only one wall between us and the room that Erin was in and we just begged and we pushed and we begged and we pushed and the guards just looked at us and um, at one point I think Chris tried to just get in and they just touched her with the edge of their machine gun and we backed off. Every day Erin woke up just a little bit more and May 6th was Tuesday in Tijuana and we spoke to her and her eyes flew open and we were just going oh my god maybe she can hear us and we could see that she was terrified you know and she looked like Erin and when we were there she started coughing and I'm like good fuck you know she's she's here like we're gonna get out of this and I'm holding a hand and I said okay Erin this all really sucks and we're gonna go somewhere nice okay and I said, we're at the beach, okay? And you can, we can smell the air and we can feel the cold sand because she was quite hot. She was having, a, she was really feverish because she was, had all these infections. I said, you're now diving under the waves. And I said, it's really cold and it feels really nice. And now you're looking ahead. And I said, can you see the power station? And I went, Erin, give us a blink if you're seeing it. And her little eyes, she did this really slow, deliberate blink and she cried. And, you know, I just talked to her. I said, man, I am so sorry that you felt so bad that you had to do this. I said, man, I'm so sorry that you feel I let you down. But I said, look, we'll get out of this and just hang in there. Do you think she recognised you? I know that she did. I absolutely know that she did and I know that she did because you could just see there was a combination of alertness and fear on her face and I had this idea that mum and Steph and Norman and the kids could talk to her and he put on Erin's five-year-old daughter who just adored Erin you know they were so close and when she came on the phone Erin's eyes were moving a mile a minute And then we left and we're like, right, we're getting her out of here. And we walked, Sal and I walked over to Hospital Angeles, which is a certified private hospital there, to see if we could get a transfer. What happened was Erin was starting to be um, prepared for the transfer and they wouldn't let me in. They'd only let Chris in. And that breaks my heart because it was the last time that she was awake. So Chris went in and she spoke to Erin. And I think that the soldiers, even though they couldn't understand English, could see what was happening. So she said to Erin, look, we're back. 
and we found a really good hospital and we're going to move you. And Chris said that she just nodded and nodded like probably four or five times as hard as she could given that she had a tracheotomy. So Erin was then put on to a gurney and they started to do the transfer. Now we got in the ambulance finally and before Erin was let into the hospital we had to pay a $5,000 US deposit. But that night we actually got three or four phone calls from the hospital demanding payment. You had to pay in full every day and it worked out to over $8,000 US every day that we had to clear or else Erin would have been taken back to the bad hospital. The walls weren't dirty, the floor wasn't dirty. The nurses and doctors actually washed their hands and also they had access to a lot of medications that the other hospital didn't. And Dr Michelle said, look, the infection in her lungs is really bad. There's a really good drug called Zigrus, but it's 10,000 US bucks. But I'd like to start her on that for a 72-hour period. And we're like, don't sugarcoat it. I said, do you reckon that she's got a chance? And she said, look, I am not in the business of prolonging someone's death. I think that if we can get these infections under... Like, if we can get her lungs back on track she's got a hope and I thought I just sort of thought because she can she's not even going to have the limp because we can see her arms and legs moving you know Uh and on Saturday morning which was the 10th Chris and I went to see her and she didn't look well she looked like she was receding almost into her bed and we just got a sense that she wasn't improving and we thought she'd would be better on the on the zigorous by now. And I had a chat with um, Dr Michelle again and I said, is she dying? Don't lie to me, please. Like, Just tell me. And she said, no. She said, you'd be having a bad day, Chris. She said, she's not dying. Anyway, so I went in and the poor thing, I kind of snuggled her over on the bed and got on the bed with her. And I was just giving her a bit of a cuddle. And I said, oh, happy Mother's Day, man. I said, it's Mother's Day and you're a great mum. And I did, I said, Erin, I don't know. I said, I, I've got a feeling that you're going to go. If you have to go, I said, you go. But I said, you leave that depression here. That was just an awful cloak. And I said, look, <laughs> I said, Erin, oh, just close your ears. I'm going to say a prayer. I'm sorry. And I know if you would, you'd slap me one. <laughs> so I just, you know. Told her how sorry I am. And it was about quarter to six, and I said, I'm going back to the hotel, and I'm having a bourbon by the pool. Come and, come and join me. So I left, and she died just after six. So I'm glad I got to talk to her. A dear friend of mine and her family are now in terrible emotional pain due to the instructions to go to Mexico and purchase Nemba to euthanise herself. She was somehow able to glamorise suicide based on Nitschke's book. Do you feel that you have a duty of care to disclose information about some of the risks that could occur? I'm still trying to work out what the risks are that you're making. You're suggesting at least that there are risks in obtaining Nembutel. I've seen none. You're suggesting at least that there are risks in going to Tijuana, and I've seen none. Does Erin Berg's case represent a risk? Does it illustrate a risk for you? Look, OK, well, look, I don't know what Erin Berg took. I don't know about the war zone she got herself into. I don't know about the difficult situation the family found when they arrived there. None of that ties in with my experiences. How can you safeguard against depressed or mentally ill people using your book, as they would perceive it, as a how-to guide? If you can somehow or other point me to the section which is a how-to guide, I'll be impressed because I can see nothing in that book which would pass as a how-to guide. Nitschke talks about the best drug to take to kill yourself. Erin took that drug. He identifies the country where it can be bought He identifies the particular kind of shop. He identifies how this drug should be administered and he talks about what can be useful to put in your suicide note. She followed each of those pieces of information, including what to put in your suicide note. Well, it says in one sentence there that people go overseas to Indonesia or Mexico to obtain the drug Nembutal. 
do you think that sentence should not have been in the book? And to go over to Mexico knowing nothing and trying to seek a drug and to use it in a way that will give you a peaceful death is highly foolish and very, very dangerous. And I think we've seen some of the consequences of that. I don't know what she took. As far as I can see, Aaron Berg is, is a pretty good example of a system that's working quite well. We turned her away. Should we have rung up in the psychiatric services and turned her in? What should we have done? The sisters would argue that if there'd been any indication that there was a potential risk, what she bought may not work and that it would take her 10 days to die, that she may not have made the decision to go. As I said, if you know what you're doing, there are no risks. There's a risk it won't work. There's an, no, if you know what you're doing, there's no risk it won't work. I've said that about five times, I'll say it again. If you know what you're doing, it works. And then we flew home, we flew to Brisbane, and then I, um, I flew that night back to Perth. I just wanted to bring Erin home. I felt like a failure. I was meant to bring her back alive. A man is placed upon the steps and a baby cries. High above you can hear the church bell start to ring. Oh!